Good evening. It's good to be back with you all this evening. If you'll please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John. book of First John. This evening we'll be beginning a series uh, through the letter of First John, and this evening we'll be taking the first four verses of the first chapter. And as you're turning there, I will say this, there's, there's quite a bit in this introductory sermon to cover. Um, so if you're a, a note taker, I would recommend that you take some notes. There's, there's, there's a quite a bit of material that'd be helpful to, to get into this, embark on this journey through First John having some of these foundational issues um, set before us. So if you take notes, I would get that prepared as well, because I think it'll be helpful in keeping everything straight as we go through and introduce the book, and as, as well as walk through the, the first four verses. So turn there, over there to 1 John, and we'll take as our reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is God's word. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Please receive these things, not as the word of men, but as they really are, the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book of 1 John. We pray that as we study it um, in the upcoming uh, months, that we will um, be transformed in the ways that this book is intended to transform us, that the purpose um, that you had John write it for would be um, would work out in us, that we would uh, know that we have eternal life, that we would follow you and, and keep your commandments, that we would have eternal life in Jesus and trust in him alone and have fellowship with you and with all believers, and that our joy would be full in you. And we ask as we study this this evening that we, you'll give us minds that are ready to receive your word, that we would be sharp, and, and, and that you would use it to penetrate our hearts and change us and have us glorify and worship you more and rejoice in you more on account of your word. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So the book of First John, as I said, is the book we'll be studying. And as you may have noticed, the, the book of First John opens up rather abruptly. It, it doesn't read like any of the other uh, epistles or letters in the New Testament, right? Where's the greeting? Where does it say John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or, or John, a, a bondservant of, of Jesus Christ? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. In fact, uh, the only book that even resembles this would be the book of Hebrews, which also doesn't start with the greeting. But you know what? Hebrews ends with greetings. John, First John doesn't. First John is a very interesting book, is that he, he jumps right into it. He gets right to the point from the first verse. And that's what we're going to look at this evening, is his introductory uh, points here in verses one, uh, 1 through 4. He jumps right into it. But before we, we get into the verses, these first four verses, I do want to provide 
uh, the purpose of First John, or the purposes of First John that he himself uh, tells us about. He tells us why he wrote to his audience, right? why he wrote to the church. Again, he doesn't tell us which particular church he's writing to. That information is not given to us. But we have this to, to believers, to, to Christians of a particular church um, somewhere right, that he wrote to, that he knew rather well, apparently, because he didn't even need to introduce himself in his letter. He knew them, and they knew him. So why, why was the book of 1 John written? Why did he write this letter? Well, there are actually, there's a number of purpose statements in the book, and we're going to look at four here. There's really four probably overarching ones. Um, there's, there's technically more, but they kind of fall underneath uh, some of these other ones. So what we'll see is actually three of the four purpose statements are in the text this evening, the first four verses. So I want you to read real quick verses three and four um, to see the, some of the purpose statements for why he wrote this book. He says, what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that, so here's the purpose, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So here we have already three things. Fellowship with us is one of the reasons. And the us here, as we'll see later, is the apostles. Fellowship, secondly, with the Father and the Lord Jesus. It's the second purpose. They had fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus. And then thirdly, he says, so that your joy may be complete or, or full. So right here in the beginning, we have three purpose statements. And then famously, there's a purpose statement near the end of the book, 1 John 5, 13. If you look over there real quick, he says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the other purpose there later on, he, he tells us is, this is for your assurance. This is so that you may know you have eternal life. So we're, we see here already, the purpose is fellowship with Christ's apostles and, by extension, all believers. Secondly, fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, so that your joy may be full. And fourthly, assurance of salvation, that you may know you have eternal life. So we're going to look at these, of course, throughout the book. That's why he wrote it. There's some other things he says, for example. He writes so that you will not sin. That's one of the tests for assurance of salvation, and that's part of fullness of joy. They kind of fit under those. But we'll see these things as we go through the book. That these, this is the reason why he wrote, is for the believers to have these things. Now, one of the, the ways or the mechanisms, really, why, of how he accomplishes this end of uh, the purposes that he gives us for the book is that he does it through the refutation of heresy. Because one of the things that's going on with the audience of 1 John is that they have people who are false teachers, who are trying to deceive them, and who have left the church, okay? Who are saying, you guys got it wrong, we got it right, and they leave. And it's upsetting the church. And these things, these four things we just covered, the purposes, they're being threatened, right? The fellowship with the apostles and believers, the fellowship with God and Jesus Christ, fullness of joy and assurance of salvation. The false teachers are upsetting that. So what John's doing in this book is he is, he is refuting their heresy and also teaching them the, the positive, true message of the gospel and, and Christian living so that these purposes will be met 
um, in the audience and the people he's writing to. So he's going to be refuting heresy, false teachers in the book of 1 John. Now, that raises the question, what's the heresy? Right? What are the false teachers teaching to this church? Well, what they're teaching is a form of Gnosticism. Some people have called it proto-Gnosticism, early Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism, uh, one commentator said, there's about as many versions of Gnosticism as there are Gnostics. Okay, so there's, there's no one really airtight, this is what Gnosticism is, there's some variations of it. Here's what one commentator, uh, Simon Kistemacher, summarized Gnostic teaching. This is how it would be um, in early church history, how he uh, described it. He says, first, Gnostics exalted the acquisition of knowledge, gaining knowledge. For in their view, knowledge was the end of all things. So because of their knowledge, they had a different understanding of the scriptures. And because of this understanding, they separated themselves from uninitiated Christians. Right? So they, they, they would emphasize this knowledge, this special secret knowledge that, that was only for them, that God had given directly to them, that is an a, a understanding of Scripture that you couldn't have apart from that special secret knowledge. And they'd separate themselves from the Christians who didn't have that special secret knowledge. So that's one thing Gnostics emphasized was that, that knowledge. Secondly, and, and rather infamously, they declared that matter, or the physical world, is bad, right? That it's evil, right? And they based this doctrine on many imperfections that we observe in nature, right? So Kistermarker goes on, he says, so because of those things, they taught these points. One, they taught the world is evil. The physical world is evil. This evil causes a separation in the form of an unbridgeable gulf between the world and the supreme God, right? So the, the physical world is bad, and there's this giant chasm between the physical world and God. And therefore, the supreme God could not have created the world, because that would have been, made him dirty, right? Secondly, the God of the Old Testament created the world. He is not the supreme God, but an inferior and evil power. So you got, see, you already can see massive issues here, I hope, right? And the reason for that is, again, the supreme God couldn't dirty himself by creating a physical world. It has to be some lesser, bad, worse God. And that's the one that's described according to the Gnostics in the Old Testament. Therefore, thinking about that, any teaching that, that of an incarnation, that Jesus was actually human, unacceptable in Gnostic thinking. It's impossible for the divine word to live in an impure body because it's, because it's physical. It'd be impure. And fourthly, of course, then, there can be no resurrection of the body because salvation to them is the, the, uh, the freeing from the physical body, right? Liberation from the shackles of an impure body. So that's what Kistemacher described as summarized Gnosticism in early church history. Now, whether or not all of those tenets are, are here in the, um, the false teachers that John is refuting is, is hard to tell, but we can see that, that some of them are for sure. Uh, so we'll look at some of these things as we look in 1 John here. What are some of the things that, that we can pick up on, some internal evidence in 1 John, of what the false teachers are saying and what, how John refutes that? Well, first, these, these people, call them Gnostics, they did teach some sort of secret knowledge for the elites, the elite Gnostic Christians. And these people left the church. Okay, So apparently... These people, they left the church. They told the church, you don't got it. You don't have the knowledge that you need. 
um, concerning spiritual matters. Um, if one really wants to understand and know the truth about salvation and God, then they have to leave that and join the true Gnostic you know, doctrines, right? the Gnostic teachings. They, they claimed that the Christians that they were leaving behind in the church that John's writing to, they lacked that a certain essential knowledge uh, from God that only the Gnostic elites uh, possessed or had access to. So they taught that nobody could really understand the scriptures apart from this special knowledge uh, that they had to get from, directly from God. Um, so John does deal with this type of thinking uh, in various places. He contradicts the teaching of the Gnostic false teachers and tells the church that they, that they, they have everything they need to know in order to be saved. Right? They, know, they have everything they need to know about the gospel and how to live a life that's pleasing to God in the apostolic teaching itself. He's saying, what, what the apostles have taught, that's it. You don't need some sort of special secret knowledge that's essential to the gospel, to salvation, or to Christian living. The teaching is not secret, but it's open to everybody. The, the apostles proclaimed this to the world. Right? They proclaim it to everybody. It's not some sort of secret special knowledge. They can hear the apostles' teaching. They can read the scriptures themselves and understand the truth. I'll look at some examples of this in 1 John. 1 John 2 18 uh, to 21, look, looking there, he says this, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Notice, these are the people that went out. He says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so they would be shown that they are not of us. Now notice this part, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And no, no lie is of the truth. You see why he says that in light of Gnostic false teachers who have left the church and says, we have special secret knowledge that you don't have access to. He says, no, I've written to you not because you don't know the truth. You do know it. You have the apostolic teaching. You have the scripture. That's not, that's not the issue here. These people are the liars. Right? They're telling you false things. They know they have received the truth already. The false teachers claim some sort of special access to knowledge that others couldn't have access to. John says that's baloney. That's false. They know everything they need to know to be saved. 1 John 2, 26, later on in the same chapter, 26, 27, he says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as, is, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it's been taught to you, you abide in him. Notice that again, right? You have no need for anybody to teach you. This, this claim of the Gnostics who had left the church that they have something that the other Christians didn't have, John says, nope, you have it. You've had it from the beginning, right? And then thinking about this in light of one of the purpose statements, John 5, uh, 1 John 5, 13, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. They don't need some sort of special secret knowledge apart from the apostolic teaching to know that they have eternal life. Right? They just need to apply what John has said in the letter. And that's something that we'll cover, of course, later on as we go through the book. So, these Gnostics in, in 1 John um, did teach some sort of elite knowledge, secret knowledge thing that John was dealing with um, with the Christians there. 
Another thing that they taught is that apparently they did think that the physical world was bad. Um, the physical world was evil. And as a result of that, they denied the true humanity of Jesus. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh. They denied his incarnation. Um, because they would think that God, Jesus, you know, God the Son, could not dirty himself by becoming a truly human being. So one, people, one way that people attempted to explain away the incarnation, which was clearly taught by the apostles, was the, another heresy called docetism. Docetism, which comes from the Greek word dikeo, which means to, to seem or to appear. In other words, basically, it's, well, Jesus just kind of looked like he was human, but he wasn't really human. He just appeared to be. Uh, Joel Beakey summarizes docetism in this way. He says, like the Gnostics, they denied the full humanity of Christ. They held that Christ only seemed or appeared to be human. And they distinguished between Christ and Jesus, holding that the divine Christ had descended upon the human Jesus at the time of his baptism and departed from him at the cross. There was therefore no real union of the human and the divine natures, but only the fleeting appearance of a union. See that? Jesus and Christ, in their view, are two different beings. Jesus was a guy born of Joseph and Mary, grew up, but then when he was baptized, the, the spirit of the Christ kind of descended on him in some way and then left him at the cross. So there's no real Christ coming in the flesh born of the Virgin Mary. It's now the spirit of Christ kind of descended on just this guy who was Jesus. Who was Yeah, he was a better guy than everybody else, but he wasn't God and man in one person. So that's the heresy of denying his real humanity. So in this letter in 1 John, you basically have John refuting some form of Gnostic teaching, uh, some sort of uh, um, docetism as well in this letter. They, whatever you want, however you see what they're teaching in, in the details, they're denying that Jesus came in the flesh. They're denying the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John 4, 2 and 3. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. See that emphasis? One, the one who confesses that Jesus came in the flesh is of God. And you can distinguish truth from error in that way in this book. There's a story of John dealing with um, Gnostics in his own day that, uh, that Polycarp uh, used to tell. Well, Irenaeus tells a story that Polycarp tells about John. Polycarp was a disciple of John and so on and so forth. But B Joel Beakey summarizes it this way. He says, one of the leading Gnostic teachers at Ephesus in John's day is a guy named Serinthus, a Jew from Alexandria and a disciple of the Jewish Platonist philosopher Philo. John knew Serinthus and regarded him as an enemy. And Irenaeus relates a story told by Polycarp of a time John entered the public baths at Ephesus. When he discovered that Serinthus was there, John rushed out without bathing, exclaiming, Let us leave at once, lest the bathhouse be destroyed, for Serinthus, the enemy of all truth, is within. So essentially, he sees Serinthus is there, and he runs out and says, this, this place is going to be destroyed. Get out of here, everybody. Right? Beaky goes on, he says, In his first epistle, John does not rebuke Serinthus or indulge in a point-by-point refutation of his teaching. He doesn't even mention Serinthus by name. Rather, John deals with the problems of Gnosticism and Docetism 
by reasserting the gospel that he and the other apostles proclaimed, focusing on points that refute the heresies that were creeping into the churches. John affirms that God came to earth, joining his glory to our frailty in the person of his son to save sinners. And that's right. So he, he deals with it by, by, a, by both a positive and negative um, uh, teaching, where he'll teach the truth, but also he'll say, when people say this, that's false. He even calls people liars in the book of 1 John, so he's very straightforward. So what we see here is that John was well aware of Gnosticism, this sort of, and, and, and Docetism, uh, and Serinthus, for example, who was a Gnostic. And these are the types of things that are going on that, that people are teaching in the church that John is writing to. So we've seen that the Gnostics believed in some sort of special secret knowledge. They, they thought that matter was evil and therefore denied the incarnation. And again, thirdly here, since they thought that matter was evil, they also denied the importance of the body, of our bodies. Okay? So because of Gnosticism, because they said, hey, the physical world is, is bad, it's unimportant, this resulted in, in two different errors um, that came about in the early church. One of them is asceticism, which would teach that because matter is bad and because um, it's, it's, uh, we, because it's bad, we ought to stay away from it as much as possible. In other words, you need to deny yourself any sort of um, indulgence or satisfaction or pleasure because the physical world is bad. So stay away from it as much as you can, right? And that may include staying away from certain foods or, or things like that. And that's one, one way that Gnosticism worked itself out is an aestheticism where they would just kind of neglect or reject uh, the physical world as much as they, they could. On the other hand, though, there was the other route, which was becoming hedonistic, going into hedonism, which was let's just live it up and have as much pleasure as possible because, after all, the body's unimportant. It doesn't really matter what we do in the body. The physical world's unimportant. Uh, whatever, in fact, they even say whatever one does in the body is not even really sinful because it doesn't matter. If they had T-shirts, they would say matter doesn't matter. Right? That's what they would write on them. That's basically the issue here. It doesn't matter what we do because matter doesn't matter. So John is refuting a group here in 1 John that seems to be more on the hedonistic side of things. They're saying, hey, what we're doing, not even sin. It's not wrong. It doesn't matter what we're doing. If you had the secret knowledge, you would know that. Right? If you had this special knowledge, you would know that. That's the type of stuff that they're saying. It doesn't matter how we live. It's not sinful. Right? In fact, again, in their worldview... Salvation is liberation from the body anyway, so who cares what we do in our bodies? But you notice John will attack this sort of loose living um, worldview, various places. First John 1.8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You say, hey, it doesn't matter what I do, it's not even really sin. And he says, if you say that, the truth is not in you. Also, First John 1.10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We make God a liar. We say we have not sinned because God says we do sin. So, of course, as we know, salvation is not liberation from the body, but God redeems us not only our souls, but also our bodies, and will resurrect us uh, into, perfect, um, into perfect bodies. In the book of John, 1 John, John often exhorts the readers to live godly lives. There's so much of that, as we'll see for example, 1 John 2.1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 
By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we have this repeated um, admonition to, to obey God, to walk in the light, to follow his commandments. In fact, it does matter what you do in the body, John teaches, contra the Gnostic false teachers. So many more of those, this text we'll see uh, in the weeks and months to come. So all this is background information before we get into the text here in a minute. Basically, let me summarize the heresy of, of the people in 1 John, the false teachers. They had an emphasis on secret knowledge, right? The secret knowledge. Only the elites can really understand scripture because God supposedly gives them secret knowledge. The scriptures and apostolic teaching alone, they would say, is insufficient for one to really know God and to really possess eternal life and to be saved in their view from the physical body. Because without the Gnostic knowledge, one cannot know the secret meaning of scripture and the secret message of, of God. That's one thing they would say. They have special secret knowledge. Secondly, they would say the physical world and the body are evil and unimportant, which results in two major problems. One, a denial of the incarnation of Jesus, right? Because, the, because matter is bad, God could never have become incarnate in their view. And secondly, it, re, it resulted in a rejection of God's command to live a godly life. It doesn't matter how we live, it's not even really sinful. So those are the things that they did. Emphasis on secret knowledge, um, saying that the physical world is evil, therefore denying the incarnation and living unholy lives. Okay, so those, those things in mind, a lot of this will make sense as why, what he's doing here in these abrupt opening verses. So with that, I want to look at our text, 1 John 1, 1 through 4. In these opening verses, what we're going to see is he's going to be dealing with two of the heretical ideas that we've covered in the introduction here. He's going to be dealing, one, that knowledge of Jesus and possessing eternal life is only for those who've received some sort of secret knowledge. He's going to refute that, and he's going to refute the idea that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He's going to be arguing against those two things. He's going to be arguing against the secret knowledge claim and arguing against those who claim the incarnation is impossible. So let's look at that. Look at the first two verses. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So here we have a starting defense of the true Jesus, one that the Gnostics didn't actually proclaim. The one Jesus who is actually essential to true salvation. Again, the Gnostics denied this Jesus. In fact, he says this is, there really only is one true Jesus, and therefore eternal life is found only in him. He starts off with the phrase, what was from the beginning. Now, all of these phrases are referring to Jesus, um, who he calls the word of life there at the end of verse 1. What was from the beginning is kind of reminiscent of something, isn't it? Isn't it reminiscent of John's gospel, the first verse of John's gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Here we have a, a claim, again, which is very, very consistent with John's emphasis, is that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is from the beginning. Jesus is God. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus says this in John 17, 5, he says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself 
with the glory I had with you before the world was. So there he is, from the beginning, Jesus was. So he says, what well, was from the beginning, this Jesus who is eternal, he says that this same Jesus we have heard, seen with our eyes, looked at, and touched with our hands. So what's he shifting into? How is that possible? This eternal God that you've seen him, heard him, touched him, etc. Because he became human. Because he became truly man. Before we walk through all the phrases of hearing and seeing, etc., who's the we? What was from the beginning what we have heard, what we have seen, etc.? Who's the we? So the we here refers to the apostles, the ones that actually were there physically with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Of course, John was one of them. Um, the, the, those, those who um, walked with him on earth during those three years of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the reason that he's doing this, he doesn't say I, what I've seen, what I've heard, why he has this we thing here is that John makes a contrast in his letter between we, the apostles, and they, the false teachers, who are claiming something contradictory. Look over real quick, 1 John 4, 5, and 6. He says this about the uh, false teachers. 1 John 4, 5, and 6. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. What we have here is John is essentially saying, what I'm teaching to you is the teaching of the apostles, not the teaching of some sort of weird, random, uh, elite group that has some sort of alleged secret knowledge that teaches something like this. This is what the people who actually sat under Jesus' teaching, who actually were with him, who were his disciples, who are his apostles. Yeah, this is a claim, basically, of this is the apostles' teaching that I'm giving you here, not what these guys, those false teachers, are giving you. More on that in a little bit. So he says, so the we is the apostles, of which John was one of them. He says, what we have heard, starting with. Now, of course, did they hear Jesus? Yes, they often heard him teach. They'd follow him around, they'd follow him for those years, and he would often teach them, teach them many, many things. They heard him teach. They heard him cry at Lazarus' tomb. They heard him on the cross, crying out with a loud voice. They heard him, uh, John heard him speak to him about uh, Mary, uh, him taking care of Mary. He, he heard Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He heard him cry out, it is finished. They heard him. Okay? They heard him. They walked with him. They heard his teaching. They heard him as a person, just as they hear any other person speaking. They could hear his voice. They could see him speak. Which brings us to the next one. What we have seen with our eyes. They saw Jesus. They saw the person, the man, Jesus. They saw him walk on the water. They saw him eat food. They saw him heal the sick. They saw him nailed on the cross, and they saw him in his resurrected body. They have seen him with their eyes. He says, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, these two should be taken together. See, seeing with our eyes and looking at, they're very similar. Looked at and touched with our hands. 
There are some scenes that may come to mind um, when you think of that. When they looked at Jesus, when they gazed at him and touched, them, touched him with their hands, they examined him, they touched him. Um, for example, after, he is, after Jesus is resurrected, right? Remember, Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus. After he's resurrected, uh, Jesus says this in Luke 24. He says, um, he says, See my hands and my feet, that is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. They looked at him. They touched him. And then moreover, he says, while they still could not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. He's really showing them, hey, I'm in the flesh. Feel me, touch me, look at me. Hey, you have something to eat? I'll eat it in front of you. You can see I'm not a spirit. I'm really in the flesh. And they're, they're amazed, right? He's probably referring to that. John, John knew Jesus very well, didn't he? In fact, John is the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest. He was not some spirit. He was a physical man. So they looked at him. They touched him. So John employs all these phrases. He's talking about the senses, right? He, they heard him. They saw him. They touched him. Why is he doing that? He's, he, he's doing that to communicate two things here. One, that Jesus is truly human, that Jesus came in the flesh. He didn't just appear to be human, but he was in the flesh, for real. Contradictory to the Gnostic teaching that he wasn't truly human or wasn't really incarnated. Secondly, he's telling them this. The, the matter of the life of Jesus in the gospel, of what he did, is not a matter of secret knowledge. The apostles knew Jesus directly as a man just like them, physical, they heard him, they saw him, they looked at him and touched him just like you could any other man. The testimony of the apostles, though we have seen these things, heard these things, touched him, the testimony of the apostles is that they were eyewitnesses to the true Jesus, and they have made his gospel known publicly. They made it known publicly. The message about Jesus and what he did to save sinners was not a secret knowledge thing. Paul, likewise, uh, testifies to this fact when he's standing before um, King Agrippa and Festus in the book of Acts. He says this, Acts 26, 23. It says that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then he says later on, he's talking about Jesus and what he did to save people. He says, to Agrippa, for the king, King Agrippa, knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. He's saying these things about Jesus, this is not some sort of secret private thing. This has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa has heard of this stuff. He knows about it. It's been proclaimed all over the place. And it's not some sort of special secret knowledge that nobody has access to. This is something that the apostles knew, that people saw that they proclaimed openly to people. The message of the gospel was not for a certain elite class of Christians who got some direct special knowledge from God. It was there in the apostolic teaching. It was there in the scriptures. It was public. He's saying, we have seen this. Not just me as some sort of elite. He's saying, no, the apostles have seen this and have proclaimed this from the beginning. There's nothing new here, and that's why he says later on, you already know this, don't you? I'm not writing to you to teach you some some truth that you don't know. He's like, this is what you've heard from the beginning, isn't it? 
the truth of the gospel was available to all, not just the Gnostic elites. So because, because the message was a public message, and what did Jesus tell his apostles to do? Proclaim it to every creature. Proclaim it to all nations, which is what they began to do. So we have these things. Jesus is truly human. This is, this is not some sort of secret knowledge, but it's a public thing. And he says, all of this that we've seen, we've heard, we've touched, at the end of verse 1, he says, concerning the word of life, which is a title for Jesus, similar to what he uses in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Here he calls him the word of life. Looking into verse 2, he says, concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Yeah, the word of life. Jesus, basically what this is, is that Jesus, the word of life, is he was um, eternally with the Father, we have here, right? Which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Again, this is taught in the Gospel of John. Remember, was, was Jesus the word with God? John 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The word of life, Jesus, as, as eternal God, was with the Father from the beginning. But then it says he became manifest. He appeared to us. And as we already seen, in the flesh, he appeared to us, which is what? For what John says in John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we have here in 1 John 1, verse 2, is essentially that. You have the eternal life, Jesus Christ himself, who is eternal, eternal God, who became, came in the flesh and appeared to them, was manifested to them. The life was manifested, and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So you're saying this Jesus that we have seen, that we've heard, that we've touched, all of that, that we know him, we're proclaiming to you that Jesus, the true Jesus, the one that is God and man, the one who, who was with the Father and became flesh and dwelt among us the one that we as apostles know and have been charged by Jesus to proclaim openly. So he was sent from the Father and, and uh, to us, and in Jesus, and the true Jesus is, we're told, is eternal life. That's where it is, and where we taught that, right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's in this Jesus this is the Jesus that John proclaims. This is the Jesus where one can have eternal life. Not in any other Jesus that's not really human, like the Gnostics were teaching. There's no eternal life in that Jesus because he doesn't exist. It's a false Jesus. He's saying the real Jesus that we, the apostles, proclaim to you, this is the one that was with the Father, that became man, that we have seen, that we've been with. He's the one who uh, eternal life is in, and we proclaim him to you. So we're seeing that there in verse, verses 1 and 2. The main point is Jesus is truly God, truly man, and in the true Jesus is eternal life found. Looking next into verse 3, we have this. He, he's basically here picking up his first thought in verse 1, because verse 2, many commentators recognize, is kind of a parenthetical thought. He's explaining what the word of life is or who the word of life is. It's Jesus, and in him eternal life is. So notice how verse 3 picks up. He picks up with the same type of language from verse 1. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. 
so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What we have seen, what we have heard, again, we've seen him, they touched him, they knew him physically as a human being. The, the physical experience of, of hearing the teaching of Jesus from his very lips, his human lips, and the experience of, of seeing him in the flesh, you know, for example, seeing him die on the cross in the flesh, the seeing Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in the flesh, and the message of the gospel of what Jesus did is what they're proclaiming, what he says he's proclaiming there. They, they heard Jesus' teachings and were his messengers to proclaim the message of Jesus, and they saw Jesus' work, and they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus' saving work. Remember how Paul describes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15? Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture. He was buried, rose again, etc. They, they saw these things, and they proclaimed these things about the true Jesus. So John's point here is that what they heard from Jesus and what they saw Jesus to do is the message that the apostles, the we, preach. That's what they proclaim, what Jesus did and the message of his salvation. He's not preaching something from his own mind that he's made up. He's not preaching something that's a secret thing that only John, the elite, can know. This is something that the apostles knew and experienced and, and have been charged with and have always been preaching. Jesus, the, the, the work of Jesus and the message of his salvation, that eternal life is in him and him alone. John proclaims the gospel message as an apostle of Jesus, and those who believe the gospel, we're told, have fellowship with the apostles. He says they have fellowship with us. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us, again, with reference to the apostles. The word for fellowship there in Greek, koinonia, refers to the act of, of sharing in the activities or the privileges of an intimate association. Or group. It's oftentimes used of marriages or, or churches, which is how it is here, churches. Intimate association, an intimate relationship between groups. And we're going to have uh, here different types of, or different um, uh, persons being described here in this fellowship. First, we're told that if we uh, believe what they're proclaiming, if we believe what John the Apostle is proclaiming about Jesus, the true Jesus, and that eternal life is in him, then we have fellowship with, with the us, with, with the apostles, the we in this text. That is, those who believe the apostolic teaching about Jesus, that he is the Savior, that he is truly God, truly man, and that eternal life is in him alone, they are unified with the apostles. They are unified in the one faith. As Paul put it, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All true believers believe the teaching of the apostles. The teaching of the apostles makes up our New Testament scriptures. True believers believe the apostolic message here. In fact, believers are, are characterized by, by in that way in Acts 2.42. says they, the believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what believers did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And that's what John is referring to here. If you, have fel if you believe the, the gospel that they proclaimed, you have fellowship with the apostles. You're on the side of God's messengers, and you're unified with them in the church. But the ultimate reason why believers, such as us, are unified with the apostles is because the apostles had fellowship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that. It says, that, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, 
Jesus Christ. So fellowship with God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And we know fellowship with, that is that close, intimate relationship with the Father, is only possible through his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself taught that. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? The only way to the Father is through the Son. If you have the Father, you have the Son. If you have the Son, you have the Father. They, the fellowship goes together. So the Father and the Son, we're told also, they have perfect fellowship with one another. The Father and the Son do. In fact, Jesus prayed that all believers would be unified in one fellowship together with each other and with them. John 17, 20 and 21 Jesus praying, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, that is his disciples who are there, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's everybody else who believe through the apostolic teaching. That would include us. That they may be all, that they all may be one. And Jesus saying, even as you, Father, are in me and I and you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So that fellowship there, that all believers would be united together, not just the apostles there, but all believers, and that they would be united with the Father and the Son who are in fellowship. So we have fellowship with the apostles, with all believers, with the Father and with the Son by believing the gospel, by believing in the true Jesus that the apostles like John proclaimed. So those who believe um, the gospel are unified with the Father and with the Son, and with all believers. Now, just a quick side note, you may be wondering, what about the Holy Spirit? He's not mentioned in 1 John here. He's not mentioned in Jesus' prayer there in John 17. Well, he's also included in this fellowship. For example, Ephesians 4, 3 and 4, he says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit that we have. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. So we have fellowship with all believers and with all three persons of the Trinity. And we, and we have that fellowship through believing in Jesus, by trusting in him as the Savior, that we have eternal life in him, in the true Jesus, the God-man. So in other words, when John says that he's writing his letter so that the audience can have fellowship with the apostles, with the Father and the Son, he's saying that he writes these things so that those who read it and believe the apostolic teaching about the gospel that they would be saved, that they would have eternal life, and then as a result of that salvation, they would walk with God in their life, and they'd have fullness of joy as a result. So when it comes to fellowship with God, that is, yeah, this intimate relationship with him, all believers have together as the church, and they have that with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Either you have fellowship with God or you don't. That's the issue. Either you have it or you don't. If you have it, you can't go out of fellowship with God. If you don't have fellowship with God, you're not saved. If you do have fellowship with God, you are saved. We can, and the way we have fellowship with God is by believing in the true Jesus, the gospel of the true Jesus. If we don't believe the gospel, we don't have fellowship with him. You can't come to the Father unless through the Son. And you won't have fellowship with the apostles or any of the believers if you're not a believer in Jesus. You're not part of his church. You're not part of his body. So only if you are a true believer do you have this fellowship. So John is telling us, he's writing this thing, writing this letter here so that we may, know, we may have fellowship with 
the apostles, with all believers, with the Father, and with the Son. In other words, that you may have eternal life and all of the blessings that that entails. So without fellowship with God, we're told as well, we will not have joy either. And that brings us to our last point and our last verse, verse 4. So we've seen a few purpose statements here, that you have fellowship with the apostles, have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And then thirdly here, he says, I write, these things I write, we write, excuse me, these things we write, that our joy may be made complete. So these things that we've seen, that who the true Jesus is, that eternal life is in him, and that through him you have fellowship with the apostles, with the Father and the Son, and by extension the Spirit as well. All of this and all that will come later on in the book of John is meant to, have a, meant to lead us to have full joy, fullness of joy. Joy. Joy is always, is always God-centered. And, that, and, and what I mean by that is that apart from him, there is no joy. As Christians, we're told we can have fullness of joy because we have this fellowship with God that was described in the previous verse. What, what is joy, though? Right? What is joy? Talk about it. It's an important, very important word, one that you shouldn't neglect because it's very important in Scripture. What is joy? R.C. Sproul said this in a little book he wrote, Can I Have Joy in My Life? He said this, Over and over again in the pages of the New Testament, the idea of joy is communicated as an imperative, as an obligation, like a command. Based on the biblical teaching, I would go so far as to say that it's the Christian's duty, his moral obligation, to be joyful. That means that the failure of a Christian to be joyful is a sin. The unhappiness and the lack of joy are, in a certain way, manifestations of the flesh, of the sinful nature. We do have obligations from God to be joyful, right? But we need to understand what that means. That does not mean that Christians can't have sorrow. There's supposed to be some sort of plastic thing where they just smile all the time and act like nothing's wrong. That's not what joy is. In fact, one can have sorrow and joy at the same time. Sproul said this as well. He says, the heart of the New Testament concept is this, a person can have biblical joy even when he is mourning, suffering, or undergoing difficult circumstances. That's right. In fact, Paul is a good example of such a person. Remember when he was um, in prison, he's writing uh, to the Philippians, and he is saying people are proclaiming Christ, but some of them are proclaiming it out of selfish ambition, trying to get ahead, trying to, trying to put Paul down while he's in prison, right? He says, he says this in response to that. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. love the way he's emphatic about it. If you want to try to tell him not to rejoice, he says, yes, I will rejoice. You can't tell me anything otherwise. To the key to joy, even though he's in prison, even though people are really being very, very unloving and, and mean to him, he says, I will rejoice. Why? Because Christ is proclaimed. Because God's getting glory. The key to joy is this. Regardless of your circumstances, you can rejoice in the Lord who doesn't change, who's unshifting, unchanging, who is sure and steadfast. We find, to have joy, you find satisfaction in Jesus and in God alone so that when you're going through trials, our trust is placed squarely on him. He sustains us. We find our joy in knowing that the Lord is always glorifying himself, and also that he is always working all things together for our good. When you, when you have all of this 
in mind and you're actually trusting the promises of God and, and, and obeying his commandments. There's nothing that can shake that joy. For example, a Christian who is dying can still have joy, right? Because he knows that Jesus will receive him when he dies. He'll receive him into his kingdom. His life is secure, even in death. Or when a Christian's, when we have Christian friends or Christian family members who die, we, as people who are still on earth, can have joy even when we mourn for them because we know that they have eternal life in Jesus, right? What about when you sin, when you're a Christian and you sin? Even though you have godly sorrow over your sin that produces repentance, we know we can have joy even when we're in our godly sorrow over sin because we know that Jesus has taken away our sins, that we have perfect fellowship with him. Even though we sin, all of our sins are paid for, and that we, have, we are perfectly justified in his sight, and nothing can change that. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What circumstance could possibly come up that if you really are grounded and rooted on, on the truths of, of Jesus' promises for us, that it would shake that, that it would destroy the joy? There's nothing, as, as the psalmist says, what can man do to me? When you have God's promises, what can man do to me? God's the one who's in control. How can we have joy? How can we have joy? Well, there's a few things here that, in particular, that John's going to lay out for us in the book. One we've seen. Because we can have joy. We have joy through knowing God, having fellowship with God, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life in Jesus that we will always have fellowship with him, that we will never be punished for our sins. Jesus prayed that for us. Again, in John 17, he says in verse 11 to 13, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, his disciples. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. There's that unity again. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. That's Judas Iscariot. So that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. See where John's getting this language of full joy? He's getting it from Jesus himself. And Jesus prayed this and said this out loud, saying, I will lose none. Only one I lost was Judas because that's what was planned. It's part of the scripture's plan that he would be the traitor. He's saying he won't lose his people. We may have joy because of that fact. Beaky summarizes this point in this way. He says, there is the joy of knowing God and his love in Christ and knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we have eternal life, summed up by what John says, the message which we have heard from him. True joy is always ultimately Christ-centered, and truly, we rejoice most when we enjoy Christ most. Joy ceases to be joy when it becomes unhinged from Christ. So true. So we can have joy by knowing God, knowing our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life. Secondly, we can have joy by walking with God in obedience, by obeying him. Jesus said this as well, John 15, 7 to 11. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now hear this. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, same language that John borrows from Jesus, but in this context he's saying, bear fruit, walk with God, abide in his love, keep his commandments. I say this so that your joy, my joy will be full in you. Jesus' joy. Beaky summarizes it in this way. There is the joy that comes from doing those things which God commands, the things that please him. We discover the great joy of the will of God when we obey the revealed will of God. Joy and obedience reinforce each other. Disobedience especially entails believing on the name of, the, of his son, Jesus Christ, and loving one another. That's what we'll see in the book of 1 John. And so having fellowship with God, dwelling in God and God dwelling in us as our portion in this life. So walking with God in obedience to him is also a source of in, uh, for us to increase our joy. And thirdly, we have, felt we have joy through fellowship with other believers insofar as fellowship with believers points us to Christ and has us find joy in him. John often encourages us to brotherly love in 1 John, as we'll see as we go through. Beaky says this, there is the joy of communing with other believers that reinforces joy in God, and that's key to it. Our joy is not found in each other in so much as that we, we push each other to find our joy in God. If you're a believer, you've experienced that kind of joy. When you're feeling down, you commune with another believer, and the Spirit of Christ restored your joy. Perhaps you did not feel like speaking to another believer, but you knew from past experience that you would find more joy if you did so. God knows how to turn our spurs of sorrow into wings of joy. He honors his people when they, have, when they fellowship with him and with other believers. And these are some of the things that, as John tells us, this book is written so that we may have fullness of joy. These are some of the things that he will emphasize uh, later on more in, in the book as we go through it. So in short, and summarizing this point on joy, we have joy by trusting God's promises and by obeying his word and all that that entails. When it comes to fellowship, as verse 3 says, fellowship with God, knowing him, having eternal life, you either have it or you don't. You can't have more fellowship or less in that sense of the word with God. Either you have fellowship, you have that intimate association with him, or you don't. But with joy, on the other hand, it's different. Joy is a matter of degrees. You can have less joy or more joy. Every Christian has some joy, but we're supposed to grow in joy and have more, as this verse indicates, that we have fullness of joy. But the point is here is that if you don't start with believing on the true Jesus having, and therefore having fellowship with him, with the Father, and with all believers, you don't have access to joy whatsoever. You can't even have a smidge of joy if you don't start with knowing God, knowing the true Jesus. But if you do know the true Jesus and you have salvation in him, you have eternal life in him, we know that those who are saved, that, that, that the Holy Spirit bears his fruit in us. You all remember the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, love, joy, the second one listed there. Isn't that amazing? Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And just as we can, we can grow in love, we can grow in peace, and we can grow in self-control, we can grow in joy as well through the grace of God. John's writing these things so that Christians may have complete joy, he says, fullness of joy, that our joy may be full. We, the, he wants us to grow in joy into true, unfading joy that comes only from Jesus and nowhere else. 
This is what uh, Augustine wrote. He said, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. One that's full of joy, right? Martin Luther said this, the Christian ought to be a living doxology, right? One of praise to God, of thankfulness to him in all circumstances. How can we do that? It's, it's a lot easier to say that than to live that way when things are rough, right? Things are, are difficult. How can we have joy and increase in joy that our joy may be full? Joel Beakey put it simply and, and, and nicely. He's, he's going to say, we have to trust Christ in all things and in all circumstances. And when you do that, joy is unshakable. He said this, how can we experience rivers of unfailing joy? He says, by doing two things. First, quit seeking your joys in earthly things. Let that sink in first. Quit seeking your joys in earthly things. Second, he says, look to Jesus by faith. Since Jesus is the source of all true joy, this joy holds the promise of reaching as high, as wide, as deep as God himself, and lasting just as long. A treasure to be enjoyed in this life and in the life to come. As Robert Murray McShane said so beautifully, this is a great quote, he said, believe not in Jesus and you will have no joy. Believe little and you will have little joy. Believe much and you will have much joy. Believe all and you will have all joy and your joy shall be full. See that? It's, it's a very simple message here, isn't it? Saying you need to, John is saying, trust in the true Jesus. Trust and the God-man, Jesus. And through that, you will have fellowship with him, the intimate relationship with him. You'll have an intimate relationship with the Father and with all believers. You'll be in the body, in the church, through that. And that, as we'll see, entails a lot of what a Christian life, once you're a believer, what that looks like and how your joy increases. But we trust in Jesus at all times for all things, and our joy will be full. So as we study First John, as I conclude here, as we study in the months to come, we want to keep our minds on, on this purpose, that, he, that we want to increase our joy in Jesus. We want our joy to increase. We want to grow in joy, that our joy may be full. And the way we do this is by what? By trusting in Jesus for eternal life. If you, do, if you haven't done that, that's the starting point. You will have no joy. Your joy will not exist unless you trust in Jesus have trust in him for eternal life and thereby receive eternal life from him. Secondly, by walking in obedience to God. Walking in obedience to God. We'll see that as a major theme in 1 John. And as a result of these things, he says, we can know, we can have assurance that we have eternal life. And that's a source of joy as well, knowing, we have, knowing that we know Jesus. So, those are the things we're focused on. We'll, we'll um, focus on in the next upcoming weeks and months as we study this book. So may our joy increase as we trust and obey the true Jesus, the God-man who came to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you for this book, and we thank you for sending Jesus, that he didn't simply appear to be a person, but that he truly became a person so that he would be a fit sacrifice for, in our place, that he could actually truly die in our behalf as a person can die. 
We thank you that eternal life is in him and that you have given this message publicly, that you've given us the Bible and that, you've, that you gave the apostles this truth and that it's been proclaimed over all the world. And here we are now um, studying it, this apostolic message of, of the truth of the gospel of Jesus. We thank you for that. We pray finally now that our joy would increase, that we would have an unshakable joy that only comes from knowing you, and that no matter what, we will have joy, even in sorrow, even in pain, even in suffering, that we would be, have our feet planted firmly on the solid rock.